0: Welcome to the podcast where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution
1: and learn that the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated.
0: Welcome to Darwin's Black Book.
1: Welcome to Darwin's Black Book, the evolutionary podcast. My name is Tom Land, a professional researcher and zoologist.
0: I'm Rebecca White, I'm a PhD researcher in evolution and genetics at the University of Exeter.
1: And welcome to our Valentine's Day special, woo, a week late where we're going to talk about (laughs) St. Valentine today. Priest in the late Roman Empire, died in 269 AD, who's executed on this day, and opinions about animals. You just wanted
0: to uh, flex some facts that you knew about history, didn't you? We're not talking about (sighs) St. Valentine.
1: Oh, but it'll be... If
0: you really want to, you can tell me about it later. Okay, No, on the podcast, (laughs) we talk about evolution. Um, Also, just going to quickly drop in, in case you don't listen all the way to the end, we have a new Facebook page um, by popular demand called Darwin's Black Book. But this episode, the meaning of love, the actual meaning, what actually is the feeling of love? And why has it evolved? In a genetic sense? And why is it advantageous in some species, but not others? And then we're going to go on to monogamy, which is Tom's speciality in this episode. Um, yep. And the definition of monogamy, if you don't already know, is the strong affinity that develops between a mating pair, often leading to the production and rearing of offspring
1: and potentially a lifelong bond. There uh, are some really interesting stories in the animal kingdom about such bonds and uh, how animals go about creating these, these pair bonds with each other. It's very interesting.
0: So the idea of pair bonding evolved sometime after our ancestors diverged from chimps, six million to seven million years ago but before the split between humans and neanderthals meaning neanderthals may have had pair bonding too
1: And bearing in mind this is only pair bonding in the the species of humans and, yes. and early humans as well this has this is all over the animal kingdom there's so so many really interesting examples about it as well
0: yeah it's evolved many times in different lineages of the animal kingdom and for different reasons yeah so huge number of birds some voles bats Poison frogs, canids, sharks, many primates, even a type of spider called the desert grass spider and just I didn't find more. him.
1: I'm interested.
0: <laughs> so we've talked about this concept of convergent evolution before. It's where the same trait evolved multiple times independently in different lineages. It suggests that there's something really adaptive about the trait, so something really adaptive about monogamy.
1: Therefore, it survived and got continued through generations and has lasted millions of years
0: exactly anyway first humans what is love
1: before we go on to this section i'm going to stick to the evolution of it as opposed to the ethical socio-cultural minefield that is the question of what is love baby don't hurt me don't hurt me Dude. No, mo- no can't, do, uh, uh, <laughs> can't do that. For legal reasons, this has to be said as monotonously as possible, <laughs> but I couldn't resist it. Um, but yeah, we're going to steer clear from introducing any anthropocentric bias into it as well. Um, our values and views on morality as, the, as a human species are not taken up by ants, moles, bats, sharks, etc. So um, yeah, that's the last on the matter, strictly scientifically speaking. Songs aside, Becca?
0: Yeah, reality is way more complicated than that, so... Yeah. Anyway, if you look at the evolution of love, or what people recognise as love, in the animal kingdom, it's clear that love had its beginnings long before the advent of humanity. So it's not just the modern humans invented it as a social thing, it was already there. So the evolution of human brain size, which is also called encephalisation if you want to be fancy, this offered so many advantages. Bigger brains meant you had better cognition, sociality, bigger social groups. Um you could have mental maps so you could remember locations of places and no directions, and so much more.
1: As you say, encephalisation co- covers any sort of brain evolution, uh, not just human evo- brain evolution.
0: When these brains got bigger in humans, and of course heads getting a bit bigger, this actually posed a problem. As our brains grew, babies had to be born earlier in development, otherwise their heads literally wouldn't be able to fit through the birth canal of the mother. Which is a disturbing thought. Yes. So babies are actually being born much earlier in development, which means they're much more vulnerable. Um, They're almost entirely helpless, and that's the same for baby gorillas and chimps as well. They're very, very vulnerable. So their parents, therefore, had to spend more time than ever caring for them, and that could be at a huge expense to them.
1: Also, they've got to very much learn how to use their body you learn how to use their hands as, as tools and figure out and therefore having a long development so they actually have a um they get to a, a reasonable size so they can wander off on their own and defend themselves in the wild as well
0: and as well as this general risk of the the child or the young animal not being able to take care of itself this prolonged childhood may actually have created a whole other risk So in many primates today, a mother with a dependent infant, so a really young baby that completely relies on it, becomes unavailable to mate with until her infant is weaned. So to get access to her, to kind of spread their own genes, a male that's not the father of the baby would first have to kill her offspring. And it's this sort of targeted infanticide that goes on in many, many species, including gorillas, cats, dolphins. Um, So it was one theory that love evolved to keep both parents, you know, with each other and with their their child for protection, to allow the child to survive, to reproduce.
1: Reasonable to to think that?
0: Yes, uh, that has actually been disputed as well, but um, it's still in debate. But basically, by sticking to one female, the males of all these species can increase their chance of siring many offspring who survive long enough to reproduce. Which, of course, is what evolution is all about. Other species have found different solutions, which is why not all primates are monogamous. So, for instance, chimps and bonobos minimise the risk of infanticide by being highly promiscuous. So the males don't kill the babies because they don't know which babies are theirs and they don't want to risk killing their own babies.
1: Also, it's um, really interesting, tiny sidetrack. Um, in some of these species, uh, lack of monogamy, polygamy is, is, and high promiscuity uh, has a whole range of other uses and and sociological implications within these societies, which we totally need to do another episode on. It is absolutely fascinating.
0: Yeah, I don't know too much about that myself, so... Cool, next episode sorted. (laughs) Anyway, back to love in humans. I still haven't answered what is love. In humans, love is mainly three hormones.
1: (laughs) The silence of just... (laughs) Let that sink in for a sec, because, okay... Love is a deep poetic thing or three chemicals rushing around your head.
0: Yeah, these these oh, hormones are actually oh, all good. types of neurotransmitters, meaning they send signals from your body to your brain. Mm-hmm. So they are quite clever. Mm. I think that's still quite nice.
1: Mm. Okay.
0: It's romantic in its own way.
1: Um, anyway, these... Are <laughs> you saying that to convince <laughs>
0: yourself or to convince I others? No, I don't really think it is. Um... And these three main hormones are oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin. Equals love. So one by one, what are these chemicals? Why are they important to have? Why are they adaptive? And ultimately, why have they evolved? So you, you might have heard of some of these already. For example, dopamine is quite well known as the happiness hormone. It gets released during pleasure when you're feeling happy. When you eat chocolate. Is that one of them? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. When you eat chocolate, it releases, releases dopamine. dopamine. Ah, it does make me happy so that's dopamine that's one of them serotonin um some people may have heard of this more than others because it helps with your mood cognition sleeping eating and digestion and a lot of people have heard of it with its link with anxiety and depression Basically, if you don't have enough serotonin, or if your body breaks it down too fast, it could be a cause or a catalyst of these disorders. It might also be linked to something else, but that certainly doesn't help.
1: Lack of sleep. It's also a cause of lack of serotonin.
0: Interesting. Mm, Interesting, because the most common type of antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs are called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Catchy. Or SSRIs, which stop it being broken down so quickly, so... You know it's important to have the serotonin but like you said about sleep Ooh. when you first go on these drugs it can change your, your sleeping a little bit and it can change kind of your dreams or your appetite because serotonin is also so highly linked with these it can take you a while to adjust to the drug That's and get really everything.
1: interesting because also the more um, unhealthy high fat foods do you eat um, your body doesn't produce as much serotonin either so it has mm. massive links to your what you eat in your diet as well that's
0: also linked to your gut's microbiota whoa so we'll come back to that later <laughs> that a whole other so, episode. so depression based from your diet we've just
1: linked do. love with your stomach and what lives in your stomach
0: yeah stomach bacteria whoa. um the food you eat so if you look at this is a completely off topic but quick side note um, <laughs> the food you eat so if you come from different cultures with different food you will have a different different types of bacteria in your stomach mm. um and there's actually a lot of really interesting work and talks done by dr sheena crookshank so if you're interested in that she explains stuff so well
1: was that dr sheena crookshank
0: yes uh she's fantastic and she does a lot of talks about um the microbes that live in your 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 stomach and your gut and what that means anyway back to love back to love so we've covered <laughs> um dopamine and serotonin and the last one i mentioned is oxytocin the famous love drug I actually have a pair of socks with oxytocin molecules They're quite cute them. socks,
1: to be fair. Thank but, you. They've yeah. also got
0: love hearts on them. <laughs> um, and this oxytocin plays a role in social bonding, reproduction, childbirth, the period after childbirth, among many other related things. So these are all really adaptive hormones to have individually. As a whole, put them together. And what have you got? Love. Love.
1: Way. There are
0: two other <laughs> hormones that definitely deserve a worthy mention here. Um, adrenaline increases your heart rate because um it can be scary so fight or flight you know you're, this could be a lot riding on this scary person you love. It,
1: oh, yeah okay yeah love equals terror yeah that's understandable <laughs>
0: okay um, and also one called vasopressin which is associated with attachment
1: clingy terrifying love
0: not, not so much but well, i guess clinginess <laughs> as well but more like you know when you've got an attachment a fondness for someone you want to be with them vasopressin is something that you have to control your kidney, which is very different function. Whoa. So that's also a very useful one to have. So here we've got five hormones that all come together to make love, but individually they're all so important. They all have their own uses. But when you put all these together, they are more than the sum of their parts. As well as playing all of their individual roles, love itself is an adaptation, or more accurately, a complex suite of adaptations, designed to solve specific problems of survival and reproduction. And this is the acts that happen as a result of love, so it's the stuff someone will do for you or you'll do for them. So if you love your children, you'll you'll do things for them, or if you live with someone good, or you want to be around them, if they do nice things for you. These will serve really beneficial functions that are linked with reproductive success. Again, what evolution is all about.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, this kind of translates into, I mean, we will start buying your kid a present. Or in nature, it would be keeping them alive. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think, actually, really, really tiny interjection here, just while it's on my mind. Earlier, I mentioned how love being broken down into what, three chemicals or small component parts kind of reduced the romance of it punfully intended <laughs> yeah at the same time I think I've mentioned this in an earlier episode but actually seeing something so complex as a this emotion that you know it's quite hard to figure out and I, I mean for one person to figure out what they're thinking in terms of love at all but seeing that broken down into all of these very component little parts and as you say, like added together it's it's more than the sum of their parts i think it shows the beauty in evolution even more so and actually it does show even more romance in in the evolution of how these different components react with each other in such a fantastic way and how they've evolved together as well it's absolutely mind-blowing so i just wanted to put that in while i remember it it doesn't reduce its its romance at all it i think it infinitely increases it to be honest
0: yeah absolutely and if you look at the reasons why it's evolved that makes it it makes it even nicer hit me with them um so obviously we've talked a lot about monogamy already and we've got more to come um but monogamy as a result of love can have its own benefits so it increases fidelity um you have mate guarding so safety um reduced risk of disease spread from being in close contact with so many others or sexually transmitted diseases Um, also resource sharing parental investment And resource display, they buy you nice stuff, make you a nice dinner to show you how well off or skilled they are, that sort of thing. Um, I'd like to mention a personal one in here. When uh, Tom and I (laughs) first started dating, he bought me a fossil that he had dug himself out of a rock from the (laughs) Isle of Wight. And it's on my shelf in front of us right now.
1: Yep. Uh, I love that fossil. Guilty as charged.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that resource display was very successful. I'm still here. (laughs) There is evidence for, for these things. Um, experiments have been done. And one that particularly caught my attention was one in uh, these prairie voles. They are monogamous voles and they love love.
1: I, okay, this is really interesting. I'm going to talk about the prairie vole later. They are so, okay, these guys, so much is cool <laughs> about them. But yeah, it yeah, yeah, they do.
0: The first thing you need to know about them is they mate a lot. Like a More
1: lot. More than they a lot. need to. <laughs> like, I, I'm going to get, right, again, again, I'm getting into this later, but so the first time that a male and female meet and actually create a pair bond and realize that they want to create a pair with each other, a monogamous pair, they have a mating session of 40 hours.
0: 40 hours? 40 hours. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's the silence.
1: Sums it up. Four, yeah, 40 hours, yeah.
0: I'm just wondering now what their lifespans are, how much of their life?
1: Was spent in this one mating session. Uh,
0: anyway, they also show mate guarding. So if um if another bowl comes <sighs> up to their paired bowl, uh, they will protect them because they don't want to lose them. Oh, um, and scientists decided to see what it was that caused this
1: of course because you've got to run in there and ruin home-wrecking scientists understand Understand. sorry Um, yes yes understand what's happening
0: remember i mentioned vasopressin a while ago
1: yes this is your test do you remember what it was for uh kidneys that's true but what's it for um (laughs) i well i know of course i just want to um yeah I, i know um you totally should go and explain to the listeners who have obviously also passed this test like i have also um do do you remember becca talk. <laughs> yeah it's great shut up <laughs> it's the attachment part yeah, the that's, i was gonna say that so right the scientists now scientists gave attachment. um
0: the vols mm-hmm. a drug that suppresses vasopressin okay and sure enough, the bond with their partner deteriorated immediately as soon as the vasopressin was no longer there. They lost oh, yeah. their devotion and failed to protect their partner from new suitors. They just did not care anymore. <laughs> All from just one of the, those drugs.
1: That's really interesting. You should mention that. And there was an experiment done in rats as well where, to show the connection between so, the social connection between rats and, and the bonds between them. Not necessarily a pair bond, just a social bond. One rat was in a cage which was very small, compressing on its sides, very, very small area, and was vi- uh, viewably uncomfortable. Another rat was then released into an enclosure where this smaller cage was kept. There's a massive plate of peanut butter next to oh, they the love small cage.
0: Butter.
1: But the rat in the tiny cage couldn't get to the peanut butter and it was squeaking and uncomfortable, and the rat would run over, and they had been trained. To do this they they recognized the button they would press a button which would open this tiny cage release its uh, neighbor as it were and then they would both have a peanut butter feast mm-hmm. together no so no it was I, a choice it was a choice it could either run up and eat the, all of the peanut butter itself or release its partner um neighbor they would both run out and have peanut butter oh, together altruism indeed yeah nice. indeed and and a high percentage of the time, no nine out of ten times, I think, it would go and release it. Unless it was starved, I think, or just greedy or selfish. But if the oxytocin in its head was blocked, it would look at the trapped rat and without a second thought, it would go and eat all the peanut butter on its own.
0: Ah, uh, so it just stopped caring. It stopped.
1: The care wasn't there anymore. The oxytocin, the love, mm. wasn't there for even another member of its own species, mm. which is really, really interesting. talk about monogamy examples throughout the animal kingdom and well okay warning at the top it gets a little weird and some bits are not gonna lie what kind of weird not that weird i have no idea what not that <laughs> you're going to about here, it's all so... surprise no just just uh be careful in terms of <laughs> make sure they know the birds and the bees before listening what to it basically or... <laughs> <laughs> it's not that weird okay. not that weird yeah that's it I mean, you're, that's your whole section. That's that. No, no, that's the that's the warning at the beginning. Anyway, so yeah, I'm. Um, we're solely talking about monogamy here. Throughout the animal kingdom, there is a lot of forms of mating bonds, pair bonds that form, um, and true monogamy, staying together with a partner without dipping your toe in another pond, as the saying goes, is actually really, really rare. You've got polygamy which is multiple pairings, full stop. Polygyny, with an N, which means single male mating with multiple females. For example, primates do this, uh, dominant male plus a harem, also seen in seals. Then you've got polyandry, which is a single female mating with multiple males. This is seen in the jacana or the lily trotter bird. Females will search around for a good male in this little territory. And uh, some anglerfish do this as well. But each have their own evolutionary benefit and drawbacks, which we will get into in future episodes for sure, because they are absolutely fascinating. And yeah, this... Um, you probably can tell, that, and yeah, it sounds weird, but hear me out. In the strictest biological sense, the courtship behaviour of animals has always intrigued me. The lengths that some animals will go to to secure a mate, it shows a sense of self and some incredibly intricate and tender behaviours from animals that otherwise you would expect are... Not any of these things at all. And I think this is shown especially with monogamy. Active choice to stay together between individuals, but is it for adaptive reasons? Sure, but also I sometimes really do get the impression in these animals that they genuinely care about each other and there is an affection which is there, as Becca has previously mentioned with these hormones, but they do care and they have personalities, so why not? And I have a few examples of such species and how monogamy, true monogamy, is adaptive for them. And I'm going to start with a wild card. Fish. 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 Uh, It's unexpected to say the least because, Becca, do you know how fish normally reproduce? Eggs. (laughs) That is and yeah. and yeah and... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah I mean generally underwater you, underwater underwater that's the key water are you is a, genuinely no underwater because water is a fluid and if you lay eggs they're going to float around and as shun- soon as you release sperm into the water that also floats around and then they fertilize external to the parents you don't know where your eggs have gone you don't know where you, as a male you don't know where your sperm has gone you don't know what, who you fertilize you don't know who your babies are um, and that's in the massive the spawning shoals which occur. It's called telegraph spawning.
0: So it's kind of just a giant mix. It's a mess. Whatever happens, happens. Yes. Okay.
1: Sometimes you get a dominant female with lots of males uh, fertilizing her eggs. Again, externally, she'll lay them in a little crevice. But there is monogamy in there in the free for all, which of which of fish? Anglerfish is an interesting one to start with. If you see something you recognise as an anglerfish, big teeth, round body lantern sticking out of the head, that is a female.
0: Ah, oh, the terrors of the deep
1: sea. The terrors of the deep sea. What you're seeing is a female. You wouldn't recognise a male anglerfish to be a member of the anglerfish group. They are very small. Like, imagine thumbnail small. For real? For reals. Wow. They are very odd. And also most of them are kind of a transparent colour as well. Hmm. Well, not colour, they are just transparent and females are up to 10 times larger than them and living at 2000 meters down where the amount of light is nil in perpetual darkness bumping into another individual of your species is incredibly tricky so you, can be, you, yeah, you can be as ugly as
0: you want and you can be ugly explains the female
1: anglerfish <laughs> you don't there's no judgement down there you can't see anything you never know so the young females, young single females will single their, uh, signal their availability with a specific light show. And this will attract a male. And the male will attach himself by biting onto the female somewhere on her body. Hmm. And then merges. Permanently. Parasite. Permanently merges. Whoa. Kind of a parasite. Oh, mind you, because he gives something back. So. Exactly. So it's, it's more mutualistic. <laughs> so... It gets to the extent where nutrients are actually being exchanged across this body wall between male and female. They start fusing their tissues together. They share a bloodstream after a while and the male will start to shrink to the extent that it's just a kind of a small body and a pair of testes hanging off the side of a female. I Just want to leave you with that thought for a second Nature right, no is wonderful um, and then the female there's actually evidence to suggest that the female takes control of the nervous system of the male oh as my well, gosh. considering that actually she controls when he releases sperm when wow she is in the when she needs eggs fertilizing she most absorbs the male literally it's yeah, but bloody. it but most take a single male, some take more, mm. and I do know of an example. Or at the Uni of Southampton where I went uni, had uh, deep seas specialist give us a lecture. And he did mention how he saw a female anglerfish with three pairs of testes hanging off various parts of her body. Mm. Which showing three different males had but bit and a bit absorbed. Wow. It's it's an odd way to live. But the reasons why this is such a good adaptation when you're two thousand meters down is hard to locate another partner in complete darkness you're very small in a very large amount of ocean so bumping into someone else is going to be extremely uh limited and small the male gets free food for life <laughs> and if it's the species in which only one male will bite onto the female then he is the only one that will fertilize the offspring they will all be his and the female well they, she's just insured to have as many offspring as she wants whenever she wants Sweet deal. Sweet, sweet, sweet deal in the deep. The other one I was going to mention is the seahorse. It's well known that males take sole care of the offspring. And the females basically transfer unfertilized eggs. The male picks them up in a little brood pouch, keeps them there. He fertilizes them and then just releases tiny baby seahorses to the world. They are Oh, so adorable. And they're tiny. And the adaptations here, well, the male, all the offspring are his. And the female gets to choose an appropriate male, a strong male that she knows is going to keep those babies alive. So very adaptive there. And they females do tend to choose the same male as well. So it's not just for monogamous for a single season, but for potentially many seasons. Mammals and birds. But first, mammals. Now, mammals are rather interesting because... Well, only th- it's, it's estimated only 3% of mammals are monogamous. And it's for a whole different set of reasons and adaptations. Uh, primates are primarily taking up the majority of that. But the Californian field mouse is actually really interesting for two different reasons and especially for one as short-lived as a very small very active rodent which will only really live to two to three years it's for a start truly monogamous and has long-term relationships and the male helps with parenting which is Ah. incredibly rare in mammals and incredibly well even more rare in rodents and actually you can t- it's really quite sweet, you can tell how long a couple have been together by how they talk to each other. They communicate in ultrasonic, which means their frequency of the wavelength of their vocalizations are far higher than anything that we as humans can hear. And when a couple are first together, the female is really aggressive and really shouting <laughs> <laughs> towards the male and after a length of time they actually get really affectionate and they're both chirping at each That's other like quite
0: reverse old married couple honeymoon stage yeah it is and rather than the other way around
1: it is and if they have been away from each other for any length of time for example the male is isolated for a period of time when they get back together again they will have a period where they're really affectionately just chirping each other Aww. they remember each other. And an experiment was done where for a week the male was isolated and actually put in a different enclosure with a different female it was called the infidelity test <laughs> very dramatic and uh, turns out for the most of the time he won't actually go near the other female he, he stays true which i think is really sweet but when the the original female his mate knows that he's been around can smell another female's pheromones on him just because he's been in the same area uh, yeah, it goes back to aggressive again. There, there's a very short period of basically scolding and then um, they're back to the, the kind of chirpy, chirpiness. Quite, quite sweet. I can only speculate why, as an evolutionary biologist, uh, why something with such a short lifespan would be monogamous because most rodents aren't. Mm. And also with the male looking after the babies as well, with each brood, only two babies are born, which is much lower than other rodents which normally have huge litters and so it seems like they've chosen something called K selection. K selection is when you have very few babies, look after them well, make them all survive, as opposed to R selection which is have as many babies as possible and maybe some survive. So it's a really interesting kind of way that these have adapted. You put two parents feeding these two babies as much as they can, keeping them healthy, keeping them alive, And having a higher survival rate for those two and then they have kind of six broods a year so i mean it's not exactly like they're They're not having they're not having many babies then there's the prairie field vole very quickly which you mentioned earlier becca they love love they love love the prairie field vole these two get to know each other they have the 40 hour copulation bout as it's called (laughs) which is interesting because Ovulation and fertilization actually only occurs 12 hours after sexual receptivity and, and the bout of, of co- uh, copulation has begun. So most of that actually has nothing to do with it. It's, it's a bonding, e- it's bonding experience. The more copulation that happens, it releases more oxytocin in their brains. Stronger bond is formed between them. It's the same bond that's formed between a mother and a child. Is it oxytocin? And there's potential evidence to suggest it actually makes them more loyal to each other so extra pair matings don't occur. And it's not seen in any non-monogamous rodent. They don't have this 40-hour bout of of mating as they get to know each other, which is...
0: uh, So it must be quite specific to
1: monogamous rodents, which is quite interesting. And finally, I can't help leaving it on mammals here, mention primates. (laughs) Primates... Primates are interesting, because they're really intelligent and they do a lot of things for very complicated reasons. And more complicated reasons than we might see in a rodent, for example. Hamadryas baboons, they have one male to two or three monogamous females, and there's been very intricate behavioural behavioral adaptation and evolution in that relationship. But again, it's not nearly truly monogamous. But those females do not have extra pair matings. And that male does not go outside his his two or three females. But we're going to talk about that probably in a future episode as well. You've got chimps, but they treat sexual relations as a political game most of the time. But you do get those individuals who genuinely show care and attention for another individual... And if something happens to their partner, another chimp partner, they won't remate or rebond. And it seems that they actually enter a sort of depression. So it really just is the one. It really is just the one. The Gibbons as well, they kind of stay with a female and they sing in the treetops every morning with each other. They sing with their children <laughs> when they get born. The male starts, the female joins in, and then the kids learn the family melody, which I think is just beautiful. But then you do get a very small group of them, have extra pair bonding. The f- females or males, the partners, find out. And then they leave. Ah. And then they... don't
0: keep the cheetahs. They
1: don't keep the some do but majority of them don't and then they go and find another and another partner for them later mm. in life really really interesting though again it quite complex reasons behind it but then you've got Lorang tarsiers forked lemurs dwarf lemurs they all have this monogamous lifestyle actually sticking together and actually not having that many extra pair matings at all it's far more common monogamous lifestyle is far more common in primates than anywhere else in the mammalian group
0: it's time for a little short interlude into becca goes on a rant Woo! um i watched a program uh, one of the explained series have you seen
1: them uh, yes i have yeah i from, normally yeah.
0: really love them mm-hmm. um, and they did one or on, i'm not sure what it was called but it was basically about monogamy um and the i didn't actually get to the last 10 minutes because the whole program was just annoying me so much it was incredibly biased. It was using this idea of primates to try and argue that humans should not naturally be monogamous and that it makes no sense.
1: Which is interesting because then they're probably looking at a very, very small selection of species to compare humans against. And (laughs) every single one has a different reason and a different adaptive reason, a different evolutionary reason for behaving in that way and pairing in that way.
0: They didn't mention any of the things really that we've mentioned so far in terms of um, convergent evolution Mm. um, and all the examples that it does occur and even though we appreciate that it's not like as common as some of the other um, forms of reproduction and we appreciate that selfish cheats and egoists do exist outside these pair bonds, there are cheaters
1: So finally in the run-through of of some fantastic monogamous examples, uh, birds birds once were the model of monogamy. Well, social monogamy, as we know now, as they're not entirely sexually monogamous. They tend to hang around with their partners quite a lot, but then behind closed doors, behind behind the nest, they will go and (laughs) have quite a lot of extra pair matings with each other. Again, we need a whole episode on this, but and it is mainly the males that go and get around, or the ones that do initiate, but sometimes the females are equally, if not more, devious in trying to get extra pair matings as well. And monogamy in birds tends to occur when there's no sexual dimorphism. That means when the females and the males look almost the same. There's no head plumes on the males and not on the females. There's no massive size differences. They look almost the same. And you'll notice that with the examples that I'm giving. For example, swans. It was once thought that swans were completely monogamous. Once mated, they were inseparable. And should one of them die, Shakespeare actually went on a big tirade on on this topic. Should one of them die, the other would mourn or die of a broken heart. No, it doesn't happen. (laughs) Um, They are actually monogamous for the time that they are both together, though. Once bonded, they won't break the bond. the, The breaking of that bond is death when one of them does die. There is a period of time where the other surviving individual will almost not want to socialise. And again, I'm trying not to anthropomorphise here at all. And then there is a potential that they will go and find another pair and going into another Be
0: happy pair.
1: Again. Not anthropomorphising. Not anthropomorphising. Be a swan again. Be a swan again. And yeah, the final one I actually wanted to bring up, it includes the oldest bird in the known... In the known world. It includes the oldest known wild bird in the world. Not how old the species is, how old an individual is. Uh, literally the oldest bird. Literally the, okay. just the oldest bird. She's, I think, 70-ish at the moment. And her name is Wisdom. And she is huh. a Laysan albatross that nests on Midway, Mi- Midway Island in the mid-Pacific. As I said, she's about 70. She looks as good as... A 20 year old albatross. I um, saw a picture of her. She, it's great. That sounds awful, doesn't it? it really they, normally, with age, <laughs> animals deteriorate in their plumage or their appearance. The Laysan albatross does not, is the point I was trying to say. <laughs> I understand now. She was banded in 1956. She outlived the scientist that initially banded her and oh, uh, was wow. researching and watching her for nearly 50 years she's still going with her 39th potentially 40th brood and in a brood there is only one egg they the the partners basically look after it for seven months before it fledges entirely but the Laysan albatross actually when they're very young they tend to mingle which means they will perform courting behaviors with several individuals Basically, it's a bit like flirting. They see who's right for them. Some of them will spend maybe a few weeks together and then it doesn't work out and they go their separate ways. But sometimes after a few years, when they found the one, they will stick together for seven months and then they'll travel the world separately on their own, traveling the seas, never once touching land until they do five months, six months later on the same piece of land, on the same nest, with the same mate Aww. consecutively for years. She is 70. We think, uh, the scientific community thinks, her partner is Akea Kamai. They've been recorded together since 2006, but there's a strong possibility that he has been there a lot, lot longer. And every Aww. single year, they've been back together again.
0: Akea Kamai and Wisdom.
1: Uh, just the perfect, the perfect couple, really. And, I mean, the adaptive reasons for this, they're a very, very long-living species and having an individual that you know is capable of bringing up a brood, bringing up a nest. One of the individuals will be sitting on the nest, the other will go feeding and collecting fish and squid, then come back, feed the brooding parent as well as the chick, and then the other they swap positions and the other one sits on the nest and the other one goes out. But having an individual that you, you know and you trust to be able to do that is adaptive because... You'll have more babies. You know they're going to be good. You know they're going to create offspring um, that survive. And that's what it's all
0: about, folks.
1: An update, actually a really recent update, which I think is absolutely fantastic. So I, I said she's on her 39th, or potentially 40th brood, depending on... I don't think they know quite when she started laying. But she laid her most recent egg in December 2020. Oh, she's... Oh. It hatched on the 1st of Feb. That was... That was start of this month. That was 18 days ago
0: wow. from
1: time of recording which I th- it, that's fantastic that's fantastic she's still going she's 70 years old and she's in honestly the prime of her life she doesn't look like she's got any illnesses or effects that might stop her from coming back for the next few years as well which is fantastic mm-hmm. and they're also pretty sure that she's actually a great grandmother as well mm-hmm. and that Very her, her great grandchildren are on the same colony as she is. been an absolutely jam-packed full episode and i hope you've enjoyed it and now it's time for da, 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 da.
0: animal of the episode thank you
1: so so far what are we on what are the scores
0: so i have won two
1: hmm i've won two and we've drawn three ah so it's pretty cool ground at the moment Ah. <laughs> yeah it's uh it's Hi, and i don't like where this is going i it's very close. yeah so the results from last time it was on the frog episode the cocky frog which is the loudest frog in the world versus the crucifix toad the roundest frog
0: (laughs) toe wiggler (laughs)
1: the toe wiggler (laughs) so between these two i can confirm becca who hasn't seen the results yet i haven't the results are And the winner was by 57.1% to 42.9%, so it was close. It was close. The crucifix toad (gasps) gets it. Oh no, you've beaten me. I'm
0: ahead. Damn. You were way ahead of me before. (sighs) Oh, amazing. I'm coming back. Coming back.
1: Right, moving swiftly onwards because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And um, oh, now it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, it's, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter at all, to be honest. Yeah, they're both um, awesome
0: frogs. So
1: yes, this week again, we're going to stick to something vaguely monogamous. Yes. Well,
0: something what have you got? Very monogamous. What have um, you got? Remember how you said that um, fish are really interesting? Yes. I've chosen a fish.
1: Ooh.
0: Uh, it's a shark. I've chosen the bonnethead shark. Spirana tibero. It is an active tropical shark that is a small member and small body size of the hammerhead shark genus. Females are slightly bigger, 81 centimetres, and the males are at 61
1: they centimetres. They are small sharks. They're like really small mm. sharks.
0: Especially for um, hammerheads. And they're the only omnivorous shark species known. Whoa. So they eat everything. Um, They can be found around Central America, also at the top of South America and the bottom of North America, kind of around that area. Mm. And they have 4 to 12 pups that are born in the late summer and these are born about 30 centimetres. So normal ruler, there's your baby baby bonnethead shark. And some scientists did a paternity test on on some baby (laughs) bonnethead sharks to prove their parents' genetic monogamy. So even though these sharks hang out and swim in groups of 5 to 15 individuals, sometimes seen in schools of hundreds of thousands, um, they're genetically monogamous. That's these fantastic. same male and female will continue to produce baby sharks. Um, there's still lots we don't know about this, but when I was doing some reading I found um, a really interesting master's thesis by Melissa L. Gonzalez de Acavedo.
1: Congratulations, you have been chosen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She had a very interesting master's thesis. Uh, This is from the University of North Florida. She did her work on the reproductive biology of the bonnet head, and she looked at different tissues, studied the the sex hormones that were going on in the different tissues, and also looked at the shark's physiology. Um, So if you're interested in reading more about them, there's still a lot we don't know, especially in regard to their monogamy. Um, You should check out her thesis online. It's completely free. Um, And last year, the bonnet head shark was officially recognized as endangered. This is due to commercial fishing industries um, and it's led to significant declines that have been reported in the Caribbean Sea and the Atlantic Central America. Um, And it's led to massive declines and widespread disappearance.
1: The bonnet head is an absolutely fantastic shark though and does warrant more reading about and definitely more protection. My animal of the episode is a lizard by many names. It is the <laughs> shingleback lizard, the stumpy-tail lizard, the pinecone lizard, the sleepy lizard, also known as just taliqua rugosa.
0: These are some fantastic names. They're okay. all great, aren't they? Yeah.
1: But do have a look at this. They are about twenty to thirty centimeters long.
0: Like a baby shark. <laughs>
1: like a baby. Whoa! They are tawny brown speckled sandy they do resemble many pine cones pushed together in just a <laughs> long chain but basically imagine pine cones laid out four pine cones in a row you've got your shingle back exactly yeah their head looks exactly like their tail and as a defense mechanism they open their mouth very wide have a very long blue tongue and hiss at you <laughs> but they are quite adorable they can live to up to 15 years old the oldest one i believe is currently 35 and residing somewhere in england oh no yeah that wouldn't happen in the wild but in the wild they lived to about 15. they are very colonial in the way that they hang out with each other therefore they don't tend to fight that much with each other when they do meet with each other when a male and a female do meet to singles meet the male basically nudges her consistently with his nose And follows her around for a bit if she doesn't want him there she will kick him away and keep running off and then eventually he'll get the message (laughs) but then if she does want him around she will basically nuzzle him back and then they walk side by side with each other and and they form a pair bond incredibly uniquely for reptiles for life and it is an incredible... in the animal kingdom. This is one of the strongest pair bonds out there. It's it's eighty Aww. to ninety percent of the couples stay true to each other. And there, I mean, there's always one. There, <laughs> <laughs> one or two males in this study did in fact go off within the first uh, one rubbish. year. Within the first year rubbish. of of, <laughs> of their mating, they did. Interestingly, go off to find an extra pair mating. But interestingly, those two females they mated with were also. I believe in this study that actually recorded um, they were the females of males who had also had extra pair matings. Mostly they are completely true to each other. They spend two months together in a year when the female is receptive. They will spend all of their time together. He will uh, commence a mating but otherwise will protect her, will fight off other males, singles, and also protect her against threats and predators leave each other for 10 months of the year around different bits of Australia, then they'll come back 10, at the end of those 10 months together for two months again and they'll pair it with the same individual year after year after year. And the longest, I believe, relationship that was ever recorded in these individuals was 10 years. Without cheating, without going anywhere else, 10 years to the same individual, which is extraordinary Two-thirds for reptiles together yeah, Two thirds of their lives together. Which shows it's so nice. much cool stuff. It shows <laughs> that they recognise each other. That it shows that they remember each other. The, the, okay, there is a, a really emotive scene in Life in Cold Blood by Sir David Attenborough, where a sleepy lizard is hit by a car. The female, I think it was the female which was, was still alive, remained by the side of the other individual for almost a week afterwards. Aww. And it's situations like that. One of them is taken by a predator. The other one sits. And for want of a better word, it mourns. And I anthropomorphizing it, I know. But it really does so. And it shows that to a level in their little reptilian heads that they care. They've really bonded. They really did bond. It was a little bit waffly on that last bit, but... (laughs) I just can't explain how. Choked up on I it was really. It's, I have just such a love for these little animals. They are absolutely fantastic, and it's just so rare in a reptile that we know of. So, yeah, the shingleback lizard, the pinecone lizard, the sleepy lizard, the blue tongue skink—whatever you want to call it—that <laughs> is that is one incredible reptile.
0: So you can vote for either the bonnethead shark or this lizard that Tom's getting very upset over <laughs> over here. Um, <laughs> on twitter and we're also going to be putting that up on our new facebook page and that's all we've got time for
1: yes you can find us on spotify podchaser google podcasts and many other podcast players
0: thank you as always to the british ecological society for supporting the development of this podcast you can find them and join the society at british ecological society.org and you can find us darwin's black book on twitter at darwin black book, or use the hashtag hashtag dbb
1: and if you want more information on the podcast, but bit.ly forward slash Darwin's Black Book. And there you can find also all the links to interesting references that we've mentioned throughout the show. And for more information about me, you can go to tomland.co.uk. Also, news, news alert. Uh, we are now on Facebook too. Due to popular demand, we have created a Facebook page. How very exciting. <laughs> It's only the
0: D- third time you've bought this up on this.
1: Yay! <laughs> yeah. Darwin's Black Book. Surprising, creative, I know. But that's where you can find us. It's a place for podcast updates, votes in any audience questions whatsoever, episode suggestions, news. I may start suggesting <laughs> books on there as well. It's a general hub for our little community that is starting to grow. Talking of our little community, I just wanted to point out some points that we've hit over the the past few months which are just really fantastic thought it worth mentioning as of this recording we have almost 200 independent listeners you guys have streamed episodes many many hundreds of times and we are only on episode eight
0: it's while we were looking at these figures and it's just absolutely incredible we've only been running since the end of november and having almost 200 independent people
1: so just a massive thank you to all of you guys out there. We don't run any adverts either, so if you think you know someone, a family member, a friend, someone you haven't talked to in ages, go and fling them. A cool biology podcast that they might want to listen to. Darwin's Black Book. We'd really, really appreciate it.
0: We would. We love making these, and um, we hope you will enjoy it and learn something as well. Um, your favourite episodes oh. have been, number one, Origin. Num-
1: Unsurprisingly.
0: yeah, we have the longest. Number two, <laughs> Extreme Living. Fantastic. And... Number In third place was Frog Adaptations, which was the episode before last.
1: Yes, yeah, so episode six, really, really recently. Yes,
0: And, um, yeah, that's been our-, our third most listened to episode, so that's brilliant.
1: Thanks so much, guys. We'll end on that there. No quote this week because we couldn't find anything suitable for just monogamy. Don't,
0: don't Google monogamy quotes. I was there for ages, losing my mind. That it's just a lot of opinions
1: out weird there. Weird okay? and terrible. But thank you so <laughs> so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Tune in next time for another episode on evolution. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.